Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome everybody to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we explain how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like plums, paint and fear. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of eyes, yes, the history of eyes, is in fact all about surveillance in Tudor England, or... But the history of doors is all about death and the afterlife in the Viking world. The man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing, but he will help pilot us through these micro-histories. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are in these grim, grim days of lockdown. However, he is ably helping me co-pilot these episodes. It is your friend and mine, the truly famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. This is another of our micro-histories, but it's the first of a new sub-sub-series because we're doing some special Christmas-themed micro-histories in which we embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history but is massively important and interesting. And we do all of this in just 15 minutes without just talking faster. We start with a shared example, then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very unexpected subject. Contributions will be rigorously timed. And you, dear listeners, will get to vote on social media on what you think was the most interesting fact you heard today or the most interesting sound. You'll note the Christmas bells there because we are in very festive spirits. Today's topic is the fabulously artistic history of bad luck. James, where are we going to start with this? Well, Sam, we are inspired, as you know, uh, we are in very festive move. We're inspired by Christmas itself, and we wanted to do something around that. Now, if you think of the standard history of Christmas, it's all about the nativity, the Christmas story, celebrations, feastings and customs, as well as the Victorian reinvention of the Yuletide season, with all the trappings with which we're now so familiar. You think about the Christmas trees, the Christmas crackers, the Christmas cards, presents, and of course, Father Christmas. We think, however, that the subject <laughs> really comes alive if you take an unexpected approach to history. Yes, Turkey, Father Christmas, the Nativity all have a fascinating history of their own, but so too do the history of Christmas via empire, bad luck, mindfulness, evil, migration, shoes, serendipity, electrification, subversion, animal cruelty, and who could forget it, carrots. <laughs> and in this little series of podcasts, we'd like to take each of these in turn. So let's start, Sam, with a particular favourite of mine, the history of bad luck. 
Well, in the past, Christmas was a time full of superstition, primarily, wasn't it? Lots of superstition. And it was thought to be fraught with bad luck. Take the robin. Very good example. It's viewed today by most people as a, as a kind of charming symbol of wintertime. James, you had one on your desk recently. And I've actually got a historic robin from my grandparents, which I used to decorate my tree. But it's a lovely little charming symbol of the winter. And there's many examples of it on Christmas cards. But in Gloucestershire in the 1950s, really not very long ago, there's evidence that some greeted the receipt of such cards decorated with robins in absolute horror. And it stemmed from the widespread belief that a wild bird entering the house signified an impending death in the family. Likewise, if holly was brought into the house at any time of the year, with the exception of Christmas. It too was seen as a harbinger of death. And even in the Christmas period, there are all sorts of superstitions connected with bad luck that were connected to it. It either needed to be burned or ceremonially disposed of after the festive period was over. And at the turn of the 19th century, it was also bad luck for fire to leave the house on Christmas Day, which meant that in a time before commercial Lucifer matches, as they were called, neighbours would not share light from their fires to ignite wood or candles of their neighbours. Uh, to ask for a light on Christmas Day from a neighbour was to issue a gross insult that would bring copious bad luck on you for the rest of the year. Can you think of anything less Christmassy, Sam? <laughs> no. It's amazing how many of these old Christmas traditions really are very, very un-Christmassy, and there are more that we're going to come to in the future. So how else are we going to think about the history of bad luck, James? Well, Sam, do you want me to start or would you like to start? Uh, I, on, have you hum- go. I have a humdinger <laughs> continuing on this You've tradition got your five minutes, James. Your of five bad minutes. luck. I've already started. I've already started. <laughs> I'm five seconds into it. And this time I will actually talk about the topic. So I'm revisiting uh, childhood superstitions from a brilliant book by the Opies, The Law and Language of Schoolchildren. Because children in the 40s and 50s and 60s had all sorts of superstitions connected to bad luck. And there were all sorts of objects like beetles, bridges, cats, hay, carts, ladders, falling leaves, lumps of coal, cracks in the pavement that were connected to superstition and either brought good luck or bad luck. And imagine, you know, a child going out, leaving the house on their way to school. They're very much alone and they're very much looking after themselves, whether it be, you know, out in the countryside or whether it be in the in the streets in a city. There are all sorts of things that sort of loom large around you and you need to beware of those evil omens that are connected to bad luck. And I'm going to talk to you about a whole series of things that were connected to bad luck with children. Beetles, would you believe it? (laughs) Nearly all children are uh, afraid of beetles. So a black beetle crawling on your shoe, says a 12-year-old Barnsley boy, means that one of your friends is going to die. So people are very careful uh, not to have beetles on them or to tread on them. And they say, he also said, uh, uh, if you kill a beetle on a rainy, a rainy day will follow. And in Swansea, they have a little song, uh, step on a beetle, it will rain, pick it up and bury it, the sun will shine again. It's also thought to be bring bad luck if you walked under a bridge when a train 
was going over it. It was considered unadvisable to walk under a bridge at lots of times. Uh, a Sussex boy says, if you do, you must touch a green object or you will get bad luck. So I had a sort of piece of celery or something. Uh, Cross-eyed women were also thought to be unlucky. Um, a girl uh, from Headington, age, age 15, said, uh, when somebody who is cross-eyed goes by you, spit on the ground. And another girl from Stoke-on-Trent, age 13, said, uh, it is unlucky for a cross-eyed woman to look at you. Also, crows. Crows are very uh, uh, important of evil omens. If a child sees one crow only, uh, and especially if nobody else sees it, bad luck will follow, uh, either accident or death. So there are all sorts of things. And here we've got funerals. Uh, to see a funeral is also uh, considered an ill omen, particularly, apparently, if you, in, in Aberdeen, if you count the number of cars in the procession or if you look through the look through the glass in the in the coffin this is seen to be a very very bad for you indeed um we probably all know about walking under ladders it's not just bridges with trains going over them but ladders are seem to be connected with bad luck uh, one 13 year old boy from forfar uh, wrote I once heard a boy say that if you walked under a ladder on the way to school, you were supposed to get the strap that day. So very, very, something to be very cautious about indeed. And very close to home, South Moulton in Devon, children would not speak uh, if they had walked under a ladder until they had seen a four-legged animal. So there are lots of these superstitions. Once you've done something, you've seen something uh, that is supposed to be connected to bad luck. There are various other things that you have to do, whether you spit or whether you have to observe other things. Um, another, this this will make you laugh. Um, and another portent of bad luck is apparently lady drivers in Wales and Monmouthshire. And it appears to have been fairly common practice. Uh, among children uh, when they saw a lady driver they had to cross their fingers until they had seen a dog uh, there's a, a quote from a uh, stoke of stoke-on-trent uh, young lad who says that he keeps his fingers crossed until he has seen not only a dog but a bird and a cat as well so there we are a range of things ah and apparently uh, the final one last but not least monkey puzzle trees the same 13-year-old boy from Forfar uh, is quoted having said, never speak while passing a monkey puzzle tree. So there we are. Bad luck is all about childhood and superstition. What on earth is that historical noise, Sam? <laughs> that is... Uh, the sound of a volcano exploding in 1943, James, in Mexico. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and it's uh, it's um it's one of those great uh, uh, historical archive footage uh, where they've got all sorts of trumpets and drums going on in the background. <laughs> uh, a complete cacophony. I love those those stories. What sort of period were they from? Uh, they were from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. So they gathered stuff. gathered over a a, a period of time. Uh, and they, they went round and they interviewed these children. They collected pieces of their work. If you go to the British Library Oral History Sound Archive, you can actually you can actually uh, look at there the or listen to uh, the Opie's interviews with some of these kids. And I think in a couple of episodes back, 
uh, we played some of the um, some of the recordings there. But go off and have a go off and have a have a listen to those. They're very good indeed. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B two B either. That's why if you're a B two B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over seventy million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B two B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes, yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be. To be, we'll even give you a one hundred dollar credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn dot com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn dot com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, over to you, Sam. Where are you going to take us? Um, I America, James. America, <laughs> splendid. I'm going to time you within an inch of your life. Your your time starts. Now you have five minutes, and I will stop talking. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, bad luck has actually got an absolutely fascinating history, and I thought about all sorts of things. I nearly decided on George Washington's miraculous escape from Long Island in 1776, where some bad weather comes in and hides the entire American army as they're escaping from the British. It was some very bad luck from the British. It could have changed the whole course of the American Revolution. But I've decided not to do that. However, I am staying over there in America. I'm going to take us to America in the 19th century, and particularly, um, I wanted to think about the gold rush, uh, and even more in particular, to the experiences of Irish emigrants who are out there hunting for gold. And this is all about the need to hide your luck. I, I love this idea of hiding luck. Essentially, it's the need to disguise good luck as bad luck. So what I'm actually going to be talking about, it's, it's the history, James, of pretend bad luck. Try and oh, get your head around that one. Like it. Um, So I'm going to be taking us to some remote mining encampments in America in the mid-1850s. We'll start with a little account of what it was like being a miner out there and why you might actually need some luck in the first place. And this is all about mining silver in Nevada at the Comstock Lode in 1858, where a letter writer just knew himself as a rambler, wrote to the editor's of the Irish American about his experiences of mining silver in 1863. As a matter of course, you have a very good idea of what a sailor's and a soldier's life is like. But very few understand what a miner's life is, save those who have travelled through some of these mineral countries and experienced a little of the hardships a miner has to undergo in prospecting for both silver and gold. This country differs a great deal from California with regard to prospecting, for in the latter named place a miner could take his pick, pan and shovel in the morning and have the produce of his day's work in with him in the evening. 
But in prospecting the silver mines of this territory, a man must have the back of a mule and the courage of a lion. He must know how to wash and mend his own clothes, to cook his own beans, to make his own bread. He must learn to sleep in the sage brush, with nothing between him and heaven but one pair of old blankets. He must learn to let snakes and all kinds of obnoxious reptiles crawl around him whilst asleep or awake. He must learn how to drink alcohol and call it the best of cognac. He must learn to pack his blankets and grub and he must learn not to growl if he thinks a storekeeper is cheating him. And after that he has to take his sledge, drill, pick, powder and fuse and go dig and blast in the face of the mountain, following a ledge of silver and gold which he sees only in his imagination and follows for months in the bowels of the mountain. If he is lucky enough, he may strike it at a distance of between two and three hundred feet. So you get a sense of just how miserable, how tough life was, what everyone was prepared to risk just for the chance of being lucky enough to find gold. So the question arises, what do you do if you actually find some? I'm now taking us to the North Yuba River in Northern California, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada in 1853. Um, This is the account of a Scotsman called William Downey, and he talks about what you do if you're lucky enough to strike something. Look here, young fellow, he said. If there is a thing a miner don't care to talk about, it is where he has been. And you might say that it is just as good as law among prospectors that every man keeps mum. Let me give you a bit of advice. When you get to feel that way yourself and you have struck it rich in a new prospect, don't you advertise your good luck and have a band playing outside your tent to celebrate. But... After sundown, when everything is settled in camp and your nearest neighbour is snoring loud enough to compete with a cathedral organ, you just pack up your traps on your back, skip out of camp, and if you should meet anybody on the road who should ask you where you're going, just tell them you've had bad luck, and because of your poor luck, you're making it back for town. But the next morning, bright and early, or as soon as you can reach it, stick your pick into your new claim and dig for all it's worth before anybody comes to interfere with your happiness. So there you have it. It's a wonderful account of if you're a gold or silver miner, there is, in fact, the need to hide your good luck, to pretend that it's bad. And in this respect, I suppose there's almost a measure of safety or security in bad luck. So it's about bad luck as a means of protection, protection of your newfound wealth. I was particularly interested in the first of these accounts because it was an Irish miners account. There's a really strong link between Irish miners and success and also luck. Oh, oh, I've got to finish. I've finished my sentence. What was that, James? That is an air raid siren from World War Two, Sam. <laughs> Very inappropriate thing to make you stop what you're doing Very bad immediately. Luck. Uh, let me just say that a number of um, the most successful gold miners at the time were Irish, and the association between success in gold mining and the Irish led to the phrase, the luck of the Irish, which actually sounds very positive until you realise it was actually came with a certain tone of derision, meaning to say that you've only succeeded by sheer luck as opposed to brains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there you go. Anyway, I will finish. Bad luck. Bad luck for me. It's all about the hiding of success. 
playing a part, acting in the Sierra Nevada, using an appearance of bad luck to protect your discoveries and your newfound wealth in the Californian gold rush of the 1950s. There you go, James. And just be very careful when sending Christmas cards this year, everyone. You will be, I think I've sent some Robin Christmas cards to people. I haven't been sending you bad luck, I I promise. Merely season's greetings. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that. We'll be back soon with another a Christmas micro-history, which we're going to very much enjoy doing. James, what's next? I think Evil is next oh, on my list. Keep, keeping on the buoyant theme, I think we should <laughs> definitely do Evil. Anyway, <laughs> Christmas is, is actually all about evil. Uh, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the pod is at Unexpected Pod. You can also check out everything we have done on our website, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can buy a signed book perfect for stocking fillers. I've just sent several out in the last couple of days. <laughs> oh, um, good, they're going good, like hotcakes, so uh, <laughs> so um, get yours while we still have them. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, guys, for listening. Back soon. Cheerio. Take care. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>